0: Hey everyone, I'm Rob Lee, and this is Beloved Journal. It's a podcast centered around the radical idea that we should love and be loved in more than just a romantic capacity. My co-host, Andy McDowell, and I seek out people we have come to admire or wish to know more about and talk about their hopes, their dreams, their challenges, and how they deal with their despair. All of this is through the context and lens of loveliness. The poet Galway Cannell said that sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. If you need to relearn or reshape your conception of love and the abundance therein, this podcast is for you. Hey everybody, this is Rob Lee for Beloved Journal. Today we welcome, first of all, our co-host Mandy McDowell to the show as we interview uh, Kelly Carlin. Uh, You may have heard the name Carlin before, and Kelly is indeed the daughter of the famous and infamous comedian George Carlin. We have a wonderful conversation about everything from psychology to religion to comedy, and her growing up in the shadow of someone who is indeed uh, revered by some and abhorred by others. Uh, So I hope you will take time to listen to this podcast, and again, we are so grateful uh, to welcome Mandy uh, as our new co-host to Beloved Journal. Let's listen in. Kelly Garland, thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal.
1: Uh, My pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. We've only been chatting on Twitter for, I don't know, a million and a half years, possibly. So it's always nice to see faces and real voices.
0: It is cool how that works, isn't it? When you see someone on Twitter and you're reading their tweets, and then all of a sudden you don't realize that they actually have a voice behind that. Like I I do that all the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's Kelly Carlin's voice. (laughs) So, so let's get this elephant out of the room though. Uh, Your dad was the comedian to end all religions. Like, I mean, like he was the comedian to end all (laughs) comedians, but also the comedian to end all religions. Uh, and he, so it's kind of weird that, right, that you're coming to a place now where you're being interviewed by two pastors, two clergy, and you yourself are a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. So so tell us about that journey from, you know, the journey of your father, which is obviously different from yours, but still takes you from a place of this lack of an apathy towards religion and downright hatred of religion, maybe, to where you are now.
1: Um. First of all, I just want to clarify, my dad was an agnostic. Uh, He was, uh, I mean, the atheists would argue for days about all of this, but my dad was a person who uh, didn't believe in knowing the answer about any of that stuff. And he was also a man who would never take comfort away from another person. So uh, he wasn't into, uh, like some people are, uh, ripping people's religion from them and then telling them, that they're ignorant um he certainly had issues with the institutions uh of religion uh as i'd say most reasonable people do (laughs) and i and and he also was very spiritual so i think you can be reasonable rational and spiritual all at the same time Uh, Because, you know, one's the head and one's the heart. So uh, my dad was always a seeker, always interested in the mystery of life. Uh, You know, took acid, dropped acid in the late 60s, and it completely changed his thinking and brain around, you know, uh, conventional understanding of God and what institutions give to people and hand them to them and his own experience of the transcendent. Uh, you know, my dad, I think was pretty cool with mysticism, but probably not cool with quote unquote religion. So, um, but he and I, you know, he, he was fascinated by my Zen Buddhism and, um, and also was always a person who was into synchronicities and superstitions and picking, you know, and his favorite numbers. And, you know, it's not like he was a thoroughly rational, rational man all the time. And um, I've talked a little bit about this uh, in front of humanists, actually, uh, at a couple of their conferences and their conventions and things like that, and just talked about his own path Um, and and my own path. You know, I mean, I, 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 I think it's interesting. I think the the bit that he did around religion, well, first of all, he did the 10 commandments bit, uh, which is just a thorough rational examination of propositions, I would assume you could call them of some things. And he was just kind of, you know, cleaning them up in some modern way about (laughs) thinking and the underlying thinking underneath those things. Uh, But then of course, you know, the big one, that he did on religion, which I guess is religion is bad for you or I can't remember what the name of the title of the the piece was, but um, where he really, <clears throat> he really did go in and annihilate institutionalized versions of what God is and, um, and the hypocrisy of, of it all. So, uh, which is thoroughly hysterical and fun, and I would say accurate on most levels. So, Uh, Yeah, you know, it's just like everyone else, Uh, it's complicated. My dad was a complicated person. I'm a complicated person. We're all complicated. It's not really black and white. And I always get uncomfortable with and my kind of my spidey sense always gets kind of woken up when people are really black and white either way with their religion or spirituality or their relationship with the transcendent or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's much more interesting to be curious and to live in the, I don't know of it all. So I guess technically I'm an agnostic
2: also. And said that there's a healthy level of agnosticism in any amount of faith. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. definition of faith is like, well, I don't really know. (laughs) Exactly. There's, there's
1: that gap right you know there's the gap between knowing and not knowing and there's something in between that and uh yeah i think it's you know i think it's a great example of the arrogance of our species when we get into i know you know so it's dangerous for sure Mm -hmm.
0: and that's the thing too like i don't think i got into this business because i know anything like I I, I've seen things I've witnessed things that have made me ponder and think about the divine in in the way that I understand them but I think it's really dangerous when any people start to proclaim one way or another that 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 what they know is true beyond the shadow of a doubt especially when it comes to God the divine whatever you want to call it because we just we don't And, and we have to be completely honest with ourselves. And then when we're honest, we become a little more trustworthy. I feel like in our conversations surrounding stuff like this.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, you can be a fundamentalist about anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cookies. (laughs) God. (laughs) football exercise program. Yeah. Your exercise (laughs) program. Oh, your diet. Oh my God. The fundamentalist vegans out there in the world, you know, I mean, and
2: you could just, you
1: know, it's the same conversation, you know, that you could have with a fundamentalist Christian or a fundamentalist Muslim, you know, it's just like, you feel like you're being like "Ah!" the whole time. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, I understand that you're a Jungian. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you could, in 12 words or less, explain all of the archetypes. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, here we go. No, no. uh, so I'm wondering what, what draws you to, to Jung's psychology in particular, knowing what you've just said about your inclination toward mystery and wonder and not knowing. Uh, what What is it about his work in particular that's so fascinating for you? Yeah. Uh... That
1: is exactly what's fascinating about it, is he was willing to step into the mystery of it all. He was very, very curious and had early on uh, an experience of uh, what he thought was a psychotic break to begin with. Um, and But he was having these uh, profound, transcendent imaginal dialogues with aspects of himself and his father was a minister. And he'd had this big dream. If you read his memoir, which is called uh, memories, dreams, and reflections right there, she's got (laughs) it. Uh, he has a dream where he shits on his father's church, you know? So this is a man who's wrestling from day one with God and the sacred. And he's at a time when collectively we are also wrestling with conventional church and Freud was his teacher and Freud was saying there's something beyond, um, you know, there, there's this inner life that informs us. There's not just this, you know, transcendent thing. And of course, Freud saw God and religion as this crutch and as this, you know, downfall of man and all this kind of stuff. But Jung had had these incredible, strange experiences of the transcendent and of the imaginal, that's what we we call it, kind of post Jungian stuff, it's called imaginal psychology. <clears throat> and he became fascinated with these transcendent states and why, why is it that humans have this? And he wanted to understand what it is about all humans that share this desire for this relationship with the transcendent he ended up calling it the self with a capital s so it's anything that's bigger than the ego basically and my introduction to Jungian stuff really came through Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers uh, interviewing Joseph Campbell in the late 70s early 80s and uh, talking about mythology and the hero's journey and, and, you know, I mean, Joseph Campbell stands on the shoulders of Carl Jung. And that's what got me fascinated with kind of a different way of looking at these things. And that whole understanding that all of the great religions of the world, the big ones, the big monotheistic ones, and then the more localized smaller ones all have Flood you know flood motifs, oh, and right. all have heroic people who live hundreds of years motifs and the lost baby found in the river motif, like all of these recurring things of people that had nothing to do with each other, didn't even have written languages, some of them. and you know, it's like, what's up with that? And so I'm fascinated by that whole thing of like the hard wiring of the human consciousness. The personal consciousness, of course, our own personal lives. And what does that mean to our personal psychology and our, on our personal relationships and how we manage our own and navigate our own lives. But my bigger fascination is with the collective and the collective unconscious and these things we share, which for me, I think is an untapped resource to really connect us all. Uh, you know, and that when we stop getting tribal about our sacredness or our religion or our God or our rituals or whatever it is, and we start to see the more universal themes and patterns of, and stories and all of this, I, you know, I think it's an incredible gift to mankind to say, guess what? I know you're really really into your own flood myth. <laughs> and Noah's a great guy and I'm really glad he built that boat for everyone, but guess what? You know, 2000 years earlier, here's this other civilization had their other had their own flood thing story going on. And, and isn't that interesting? And you know, and so what could flooding mean? What could the archetype of water mean? Like what So that's my thing is I'm I'm always looking for ways to help people pull down that which divides us and highlight that which connects us. You know, I I think in the end, that's going to be our only hope here.
0: Right. You know, one of the things I think about when you're talking about this, when you said Joseph Campbell, I had a... I had a professor when I went to Appalachian State, her name was Lane McDaniel, and we watched the hero's journey like that was part of our class. And even when I taught at App, when I came back to teach at App, I, I showed that because so I thought it was such an important thing. And so it makes me wonder, even in the collective, we have lifted up these people that are that are our heroes, the people that are that are making the world either a better or a more honest or a more truthful place. And I'm wondering kind of who are those people in your life that you view as this hero that may not be perfect. It may not be, you know, the, the superhuman, but is nonetheless a hero for you today or whenever.
1: Yeah. I, I think for me, it's always people. I mean, Joseph Campbell's certainly one of them. Um, I think of Frida Kahlo and Georgia O'Keeffe. Um, I certainly, my father was one for me. Um You know, uh, Oprah Winfrey is another one. You know, anyone, you know, the hero, it's interesting because the hero is in some ways, the hero's journey in particular, there's a calling. There's something that calls the hero from the motherland, you know, and makes them go out into the world to fight against something that's ultimately threatening home or some concept of mother or home. And through that, through that encounter with that thing, they become changed and then they come back home with more wisdom, more experience, you know, and, and so, you know, I think anyone who's utilized the difficulty in their life and brings it back to the culture and uses it through their art or through social change, uh, through politics, Um, whatever it is. Uh, You know, I I think it's a very heroic thing to do. Um, And so for me, I'm always, I'm really fascinated by those who are willing to step out of the cultural norms and take the risk um, to follow their bliss, as Joseph Campbell used to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that it, And that it may at first feel like a personal bliss or a personal mission, but that as they live into it more and more, whether they like it or not, it becomes one that, um, others can draw from in, in some way. Um, I spend a lot of time. I have a coaching program called women on the verge, and I spend a lot of time teaching the heroine's journey to my clients. And the heroine's journey is a little different. Um, There's a couple of different interpretations of it these days, but it was first identified and first talked about by a woman named Maureen Murdoch, who was actually a student of Joseph Campbell's and asked Joseph, well, what about the feminine? What about the, you know, because the masculine goes out in the world and has this encounter with the feminine and then is transformed by it and then comes back. And that's part of the treasure. He comes back. He's been transformed by this encounter with Death, or the dark mother, or the dark goddess, or something like that, and a lot of other encounters of other things too. But Maureen was like, "But what about the feminine? Like, does the feminine like What's the transformative? You know, she's just not the hero automatically." And he goes, "Oh, the feminine doesn't need to be transformed. You know, she's already she's already got what the hero wants. You know." And Maureen's looking at him like, "Really." (laughs) we love you, Joseph Campbell. We love you, Joe, but, uh, sorry, you know, and this was the seventies of course, and, you know, women's movement and all of that. And Maureen really sat down and she thought about the psychological journey of the, of the feminine of a woman and what she does and how there is, because we all live inside of a patriarchal mindset and society. Um, And I don't mean that in the, like the, the most academic woke way, uh, that, you know, that the, basically men run the show and have for thousands of years, like, you know, it was, wasn't it wasn't until the late seventies that a woman could have her own checking account. So, you know, uh, you know, so there's this broad patriarchy and basically what happens is women have to buy into the system of that in order to succeed, whether it's to succeed as a wife or a mother or, or if you go out of the world, it's a man's world out there. And of course, things have changed the last 50 or 60 years a lot. But the underlining thing is that. And so Maureen got really curious about what happens to women when they only buy into that point of view and only see the world through that. And how do they separate from their own innate knowing and their own innate embodiment and their own innate wisdom? And their own relationship with the feminine, the archetype of the feminine or the archetype of the great mother. And so she wrote a whole book about this. And so I I work with that part of the myth a lot with women, too, uh, which is much more of an internal journey. Um, And so the hero leaves the motherland, leaves the bosom of the mother, the safety of the village, to go out into the world, to redefine himself, to conquer something and come back with wisdom. Whereas women leave the fatherland, they leave the father mindset and go on an inner journey to reclaim their values, reclaim their wisdom, reclaim their their relationship with their, their own selves, their knowing so that then when they come back to the fatherland and come back to society, they are seeing with new eyes and feeling with new body and making choices and decisions based on a much more integrated value system and not one that's only been gifted to them through capitalism or modernity or, you know, or whatever it is. And so I love just playing with all these kind of mythologies or journeys that we go on, you know, whether it's the outer journey or the inner journey, we're all on it. We're all on a hero's journey. We're all on a heroine's journey. Men, women, does not matter what your gender is. Um, and, and I'm just fascinated by the, the general journey of humans trying to find their way into some quality <laughs> of life, basically.
2: Uh, Some of what you're talking about reminds me of, um, I remember studying in college, I have a psychology background, and we studied Karen Horney's work, and she talked about the tyranny of the should. uh, And the the way in which that general theory is applicable, she was writing specifically for women as a German woman who didn't want to be a Hausfrau. Uh, And so she pursued a career in academia, which was highly unheard of and took a lot of courage. Um, But that language is like some of the briefest, most effective in my world, pastoral care uh, that I have found is the idea that we become locked into these uh, archetypes of who we should be, um, yeah. and pushing against that is really challenging. Um, and for you, as someone who is inherently creative, uh, I'm I'm wondering. I'm wondering because the creative act is meant to produce something completely unique and original, right? Like nothing feels better than the feedback. No one's ever thought of that before. Yeah, uh, this is a truly. totally unique position that no one has ever had. Um, there is something just dopamine-rich about that uh, that sort of comment. But to your very point, in these you know archetypal views of our mythology and our narratives and our scriptures and our own stories, there's you know there's twelve notes in an octave. Uh, there's not that much material to work with. So how do you find your own creative journey within this framework that is so um, sort of clearly, I shouldn't say clearly, it's not that clear, uh, but there is a framework that is sort of universally applicable. How do you find that both fueling and, and even, you know, even stymieing your creativity at times?
1: Yeah, I, you know, creativity is such a fascinating Path or moment or experience or choice or, or whatever it is, and it's usually not a choice. Uh, there's so many different ways I've thought about it over the years, and I'm and I'm always updating my relationship with my creativity and or what um, my satisfaction with it. I mean, I felt for most of my life very stymied. Uh, very in the shadow of my father's creativity and had um, a, a great glimpse in my teen year. Well, early years, of course, kids are just naturally creative kids just create all day. They like, and the thing about kids and creativity is they're just, they're just kind of expressing and they've got no expectation and they've had no encounter yet with comparison so they're just in free expression mode and that's like that's that's what you want you want to be in like just free expression mode all the time but pretty early on then it's like oh, that person's free expression looks a lot better, like more like a house than mine does <laughs> or whatever it is. But but there's this great golden age, you know, that you kind of, it's like up to like nine or 10, basically, especially for girls. I think probably, I don't know if boys are the same, but something happens around adolescence for both of us where it's like suddenly this whole, you know, all the shoulds really come walking in the room. Yeah. Um, so there's that pure expression thing. And so I had that as a kid and did things like skateboard ballets and skits and circuses and all those kind of things that you do. And you just, we're going to write a play today. and You just write a play and then you perform in front of your family. And, you know, you don't even think twice about it. Like, oh, how's this structured or is this going to be good? You don't care. Uh, And then in high school, I was lucky. Uh, Late junior high, I picked up a camera and started taking pictures And had this experience of, you know, being in your creative process is very much a somatic experience. Something happens where you just feel like you're in a flow or you're something's clicking or you're something lights up inside of you. And I had that with photography and and then I got some feedback from some teachers that was like, oh, you have a good eye you know, or, and, and you could feel that in yourself too. Like, yeah, I thought that that looked good. And then someone else is saying, yeah, it is, it's working for us too. And I think then that's about learning craft then at that point, you know, now you're learning your craft. And I um, had that for a little while, but then, and I always wanted to be a performer and a sketch artist and Carol Burnett and Lily Tomlin were my heroes as a kid. That's who I wanted to be. Uh, but the whole thought of Hollywood and auditions, and I had a lot of some trauma that you know my childhood was very complicated and chaotic. I write all about this in my memoir um, so I, it was not easy for me to land in a in into my creative flow, and then it really wasn't until my mom died when I was thirty four almost thirty five <clears throat> and um, when my desire to express myself really came front and center. And I had a moment at my mom's memorial where I'd written what I wanted to say to the audience, and I was really speaking from my heart. I had a profound spiritual awakening, uh, awakening the week my mother died. Um, I, I had a profound, profound, profound experience of transcendent love entering my body and mind. Um, if I had been a raised a Christian, I probably would have – called it Jesus, you know, like, like, like you, whatever your framework is, but I had this profound experience of love and getting up there and talking during my mom's Memorial, I really realized that I wanted to, to stand up in front of people and speak my truth and speak from my heart and speak the truth. Because in the moment I was speaking the truth about grief in a way that um, I felt was raw and real and bold and um and I wanted to do that in some way and i and I knew that i I needed to speak my truth first to begin with um but but that was you know even though i it was always two steps forward, three steps back kind of a thing for me for a long time and and it's so interesting that the creative process, I mean, you know, you can really be in your head about it and you can really get stuck and, and, and really try to figure it out. But really what I've come to for myself is there's some sort of burning desire for me to express something. And for some people, it's painting a picture. And for some people, it's building a building. And for some people, it's uh, getting up in front of a group of people and talking about the sacred or God, or for some people it's writing, you know, like there's something that you have to attend to and it's bigger than you. Um, and, and, you know, my dad sent me this great quote. I remember when I was struggling with my own creativity in my, in my thirties and trying to figure out what direction I was going to go in life. And he, you sent me an email with this great quote from Martha Graham. She'd written a letter to Agnes DeMille. And you can look it up in the, on the internet. It's an incredible quote. But the main thing is, is that she says to her, it does not matter what it is or how good it is or how it compares to other people's. Um, all that matters is that it's uniquely yours and that you have to express it because if you don't, it will be lost forever. And so for me, that feels very much like, not that there's, you know, I think that's the unique part, the thing that's never been seen before or never been expressed before Um you know, there are only 12 notes, but there are also only so many colors on the palette. And there are only so many letters in the alphabet or words in the English language. But the, it's, the, it's the order in which you put them in um, and, and with what you do with it. And so for me, honoring that unique expression is, I think, a sacred duty. I just do. I feel it's completely connected to the transcendent and my honoring and respect of the spark of life that put me here. You know, it's all in the same soup as spirituality and whatever it is. It's all the same conversation, Um, which doesn't mean it's precious or it's special or it's better or it's to be worshipped or anything like that. It's just that it's, um, it's as unique as a single flower that you see in a garden it has as much life force in it and um it took the whole universe to make that flower as it takes the whole universe to make that urge in you to write your memoir or paint a mural you know it's it's about honoring that urge that life force urge in the end
0: Well, Kelly, one of the things I think of when you say all this, you spell it out very clear and very succinct, but there's still a complexity to it, right? Like there's a complexity in all of it. There's nuance that sometimes is missed on so many people, but I'm curious, really, at the end of the day, you know, we've talked about your father, we've talked about your relationships, we've talked about your relationship to the transcendent or the divine. Um, I'm curious who or what, do you find easy to love?
1: Mm. Wow, what a beautiful question. Well, easy to love. Well, nature, I, I just, I'm so in awe of this coral tree that I have, right? That I'm looking at right now uh, in my garden, um, or that first bud of spring. I'm in, I'm just in awe and love with all of that. And, um, I'm in love. It's, you know, I mean, it's so easy for me to love my husband too. He's amazing. Uh, but I think the things that I love that are easiest to love for me are watching people who are willing to bring their humanity first and are willing to be vulnerable. I mean, it's such a, it's such a funny thing, but uh, my husband and I are watching the show Ted Lasso. Yeah. And it was all over social media. Oh, you've got to watch Ted Lasso. Oh, you've got to watch Ted Lasso. And whenever people tell me to do stuff like that, I'm always like, Screw you. I'm not watching anything you're telling me to watch. And then I'm finally like, okay, I'll watch it. And I have to tell you, it's like literally Ted Lasso could save the universe. I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's so, it's so easy to love. He, like anything that opens your heart that way, anything that's unabashedly willing to see the good is just, it's like, uh, it's, I'm sold. I'm sold. It's just, it's where I live. You know, I, I, you know, I can get on my little high horse and get all negative and grumpy about the world. And, um, you know, it's funny talking about my dad. A lot of people say about my dad, like, Oh, he got so angry the last 20 years and um, and he's just so grumpy. And my dad did this amazing interview that I uh, got a copy of. And they were asking him about that. And he said, well, you know, I don't live my life like an angry person. I don't, I don't walk around angry. I'm not in a constant state of anger. Um, he says, I'm a disappointed idealist. Mm-hmm. I'm broken hearted. I saw such possibility and potential in this species and we do everything every day to fuck that up and it breaks my heart and so i'm just pointing out things that are breaking my heart in some ways you know and you know and it, and so i just I, I think it's so interesting it's he's kind of the opposite of ted lasso in that way but they both come from the same place <laughs>
0: That's a really interesting comparison if you think about it, but it's so true. I think we hit something that's so true. Um, wow. I'll have to, I'm going to ruminate on that, that one for a while. I know Mandy will you too so excited. so Kelly, where can we find yeah. you online or get in touch with you if we wanted to, or if uh, people are listening to this, want to follow you, where can they find you?
1: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter for the most part. I'm at Kelly underscore Carlin. I'm over on Instagram. Uh, Kelly Carlin is here. If you're curious about my Women on the Verge program, you can go to womenonthevergecoaching.com. And that's uh, a little website for my coaching program. And then my my website is kellycarlin.com. And we're in the middle of reshuffling some things. And all of like my performance stuff is all there and my memoir and all that kind of stuff. And then a little bit about what I do with my coaching work. Um, but that's generally where you can find me on the great, fabulous World Wide Web.
0: The wild, wild west of the interwebs. Kelly, this has been such a pleasure. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on Beloved Journal.